Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 14 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 52 in our series. Today, we're going to talk with two young meteorologists, <laughs> amazingly young, both of whom light up Twitter and the web. It's Matthew Capucci is part of the Capital Weather Gang team at The Washington Post. He's been there about three years after getting a degree at Harvard, along with courses at MIT. And Jack Sillen is still in school at Cornell. He has his own website, forecasterjack.com. He has another one called sillenweather.com, and he writes for other weather websites, and both of them do a thousand other things, I'm sure. We'll talk to Matthew and Jack about their take on weather and communications in the modern world and how they uh, got to be such accomplished meteorologists at uh, such a young age. That's coming up in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, tune into Channel 10 in South Florida for Local 10 News or Local10.com, where you can always watch Local 10 News live and for free. If you don't have TV, just go to Local10.com. Newscasts are there. Or, of course, for hurricane information, download the Max Tracker Hurricane app or the Local 10 Weather app for current weather information. So, um, talking about the tropics right now, Luke, uh, Beta is still dumping on, well, it's moved out of Texas, I guess, but now into the Northeast. Houston got over a foot of rain yesterday in, in parts of town. Um, another had flooding and so forth, another slow moving. Uh, kind of annoying storm, although this one at least was pretty well forecast as compared to Sally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, well, they got what, 16, 15, 16 inches of rain there. One of those storms, too, that highlights where, you know, the category of the storm doesn't convey the threat. I mean, if you look at some of the video that came out of Houston, they've had tons of water rescue, tons of them. And uh, it's been a pretty dire situation there on, on that front from the flooding front. But, uh, yep. Uh, aside from it, though, you know, Teddy, Monster Teddy, humongous. I believe the National Hurricane Center used in their discussion ginormous. <laughs> That's uh, that made a run toward Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. Uh, both have gone post-tropical. And for the first time in what, a month and a half, something like that, six weeks, we don't have any active or developing tropical systems. I know. I hardly know what to, how to begin to write a post in the morning. It's uh, it's a crazy thing. And uh, yeah, the estimate from the Hurricane Center on the diameter of Teddy, just over 800 miles, uh, last I saw, and uh, um, Sandy was about 1,000 miles. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite at Sandy's level, but still by typical storm standards, which are 300 miles or something like that, if it's a pretty good sized storm. I mean, it was... Uh, really giant, but, but it got big, uh, as part of this transition to a more Northern type storm, is Sandy, an extra tropical storm. Is Sandy King of the size? I know the perfect storm was really big. Is there anything? Yeah. You can think well, of that was I larger? mean, you, because you can only know for sure if you've measured it. So Sandy was the largest measured storm, right? So, so, uh, where other storms, no doubt were large, but we didn't have airplanes out there measuring in detail how big the tropical storm force winds. So it's the 40 mile an hour winds. And, you know, what's the diameter on that? That's generally what we use for the size of the storm, even though, you know, you can have pretty good winds outside of that. And no doubt there were. 
yeah. in both of those. So uh, there was a pretty early front uh, that we had come through here. Although, you know, uh, I asked the question of, of Rob Mulleda and Pablo Santos at the Miami National Weather Service office. So was this really unusually early? It just feels unusually early to me. And they said, well, yeah, uh, except for last year. <laughs> last year, there was actually a front that came a day or two earlier that actually lasted longer than this one. So Really? I don't remember funny. that. Yeah. And it was propelled by Umberto was, was part of it. It was a very similar sort of setup. Umberto was offshore and and high built in behind it and and it flung the uh the front through and it's funny how our memories work that way yeah i mean as you mentioned that and i'm just rolling back through the records myself trying to find something and i missed over that and it completely escaped my mind and it was only a year ago it's funny how we get weather amnesia sometimes but you know without something like a hurricane offshore to help propel a front down it's it's tough it's tough to get a real front in mm -hmm. mid-September here in South Florida. There's another one that's trying to line up for the early part of October, the first, second of the month, something like that. So the, the east half of the country is going to get this, most likely. But for mm -hmm. us, the question is, is it going to crawl all the way down the peninsula? We don't have a hurricane out there to help it this next time. And these early season fronts will make you want to pull your hair out when you forecast because they will tease you. Uh, the models will display them and you'll you'll bite, you'll bite, and even a couple days out. But more often than not, in my experience, uh, it, they just have too tough of a time and they'll stall to our north, typically around the lake. Yes. Around right. Lake Okeechobee. Well, you know, I I learned to not bite on that in my all my years of forecasting the weather here. Uh, is if they didn't have some kind of help, uh, you know, don't bite on the don't bite on the early cold fronts because they usually stall about the time they get here. Although this one, this one had that, you know, it definitely went through. There was no question about that. But the winds went northeast right away. But it just had all it had all that extra energy behind it because of that big uh, circulation up there. Yeah. Yeah, well, no complaints, man. I'm loving it. Yeah. After a well, long we don't we don't really like these, especially because in order to get these, if you don't have a hurricane, you have to have a really deep trough, a big dip in the jet stream, kind of dipping down. It almost has to go to the Gulf, right, to really get the front to go through. And then when you have that, those are the weather features that can scoop up stuff in the tropics and bring it north, um, uh, a la Hurricane Michael years ago, for example. You know, it takes that big dip to really get stuff out of the Caribbean coming north normally, uh, or at least that's one of the ways uh, for that to happen. So so always get a little worried about that when you start having fronts, because that means that you do have the jet stream dipping south and scooping, so to speak. Uh, so anyway, we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. History tells us October can be a big month in Florida. And I just on my Twitter, just my personal experience today, I've had a lot of people say, oh, we, we've got the front that came through and October's in sight. We're done. That's there's a, some of that's going around on in the public. Uh, obviously not the case. So stay yeah, tuned, stay vigilant. Definitely uh, not the case. Yes. In October, it used to be you know, they, they do these averages, these hurricane averages over different periods of time and so forth. But um, I don't know, 20 years ago or something like that, we used to say October was the month that you are most likely to have a hurricane in South Florida. Then we started having more hurricanes in August and September, and they kind of tilted it a little bit towards September. But, you know, 
October is a big month uh, for hurricanes here. Generally not as strong, but still a big month uh, for hurricanes. So, okay, let's first talk with Matthew Capucci of the Capital Weather Gang at the Washington Post, who writes outstanding articles about all sorts of weather phenomena. He also chases uh, tornadoes and a lot of other things. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So it seems like forever ago I first met you. I mean, it doesn't seem possible because you're so young, but it was at the AMS, I think, at a, a conference. And I mean, you were a youngster. So how long ago was that? Was that and how was that possible? I think I, uh, it was your first talk. Didn't you do a talk at the AMS when you were... I don't know whether you were in high school or something. It was yeah, a crazy thing. I, I was 14 or just turned 15. This was the AMS conference, the broadcast conference in Nashville. So I think that was a 40th conference back in 2013. And I was so excited to be there. I was so grateful people actually let me go. But it was fun. I did a talk on outflow boundary related water spouts and how we could use different radar aberrations, different techniques, little nomograms, things like that to try to better predict them. Because that summer in Massachusetts, we had had at least three incidents where outflow boundary related water spouts ahead of the storm had made landfall and kind of curved into the shoreline, causing EF0 low and EF1 damage. And none of them had warnings in advance. And, and going back over the radar data, I found there was a way to try to better predict them when the boundary intersected the coast in a, a particular way. But yeah, that's when we first bumped into each other. And, and I remember I was actually so starstruck and, and terrified to meet you because I'd been you know, watching you in the Weather Channel growing up. So it was great getting to meet you. And I really appreciate letting me come on the program. Well, it's a uh, it's one of those artifacts of being old, I think, that I hear a lot now from people that say, oh, yeah, when I was a little kid, I used to watch you and uh, I remember this and that. It's a, it's an amazing thing. So I as I recall, when you were in high school, you were doing weather casts for the high school and uh, some kind of fancy stuff even then. Do I remember right? Yeah, I tried doing it for public access back in the day. And keep in mind, this was back, you know, I didn't have any fancy equipment. I had figured out how to make graphics on PowerPoint, and they were pretty good graphics. I had moving backgrounds and the 70 forecast animated and whatnot, and actually would put my computer on a recycle bin in the basement on top of a table mate. I had a green screen that I sewed from Joanne Fabrics just so I could try. It was a big piece of green felt just so I could try to get some experience in front of the, the green screen, the chroma key, all that stuff. Unfortunately, I never knew where I was because I didn't have any side monitors or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I was recording off a Nikon camera, and that's that's kind of how I started doing it. Unfortunately, I'm not really on camera all that much right now, but I still, you know, every day I long for TV. And it was nice even back then to try to get my foot in the door. It's just impressive. I, I think back to when I was in high school and it was, you know, drive to the uh, Taco Bell and just hang out. And here you are doing AMS talks, technical discussions on outflow boundaries and building your own home setup as your studio is remarkable. But let's go to the beginning. Most meteorologists I know, they and myself included, you get hooked on weather because of some event, usually a big storm, something like that. Uh, and it usually happens when you're young or really young and sears into the brain or something along those lines. How did it start for you? You know, I'm kind of an unusual case in that I knew I wanted to be a meteorologist before I could talk, which sounds apocryphal, but... In fact, one of my first words was an attempt at saying wind meter or, or anemometer or something like that. My neighbors across the street back when I was, I think, two or three had this, this whirly gig thing on their rooftop. And I was obsessed with it. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out how it could spin if I couldn't see anything pushing it around. And I learned about wind. I learned where wind came from. 
I remember when I was five or six years old, my parents got me a book and, and I couldn't read back then, obviously got me a book with a bunch of pictures. And one of them was a waterspout. And I was just drawn to that. And I think my love of meteorology first started with waterspouts and tornadoes and, and grew from there. And I remember, I think it was probably seven or eight years old, uh, around the time a lot of kids are, are nervous about all sorts of different things, whether it be monsters under the bed or, or goodness knows what. And I was walking to the, the room and I saw my dad watching a documentary on tornadoes on the Discovery Channel. And I said, oh, can, can I watch? And my mother was a little bit nervous. She said, no, it'll make you scared. But my father convinced her. And, and I sat and watched that whole thing. And I was hooked. It was tornadoes from then on. Yeah, it's interesting, Matthew. You know, I'm comparing where I was at these different stages that you're talking about to, to your experience. And it's striking how advanced you were uh, and from high school on. So, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had an interest in storms. I watched the storm chasing videos. I had a couple basic books and this carried me through high school. But I realized by the time I got to college, how little I actually knew about the workings of weather. I could tell you what a cumulus cloud was. I could, uh, you know, I knew tornadoes. I could rattle off some stats. But you were already pretty accomplished. And you had a really good understanding of the dynamics of an atmosphere and how things happen, the actual workings of it. How did you do that? What, what were the methods that you did? Uh, you know, when you're not being taught these things in school, you taught these yourself. What, what did you do for that? Yeah, growing up in the age of Google, I devoured as many peer-reviewed articles as I possibly could. And I was so fortunate to have people through the AMS who would serve as mentors and, and as people who would really just point me in the right direction. I think anytime I was curious about something, I could not stop until I got the answer. Just had an insatiable appetite to really figure out what was going on in the atmosphere. And if there was something I didn't know, me being type A me, I had to keep searching until I found the answer. And I feel like much of what I learned in terms of forecasting and the hands-on aspect of meteorology was pretty much outside of school. School taught me the equations, taught me the, the under-the-hood dynamics, but I think most of the practical applications for me was something that I tried to learn on my own, whether it be experientially or, or out in the field. One of my best purchases ever was a copy of Thomas Brazoulis' Significant Tornadoes, 1680 to 1991. It's like 300 years worth of tornadoes. It's I call it the... the wow, they had tornadoes in 1680. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Oh, I, I love that thing. And it was funny because I had searched online forever. I think they printed like 2,500 copies and mm -hmm. every single one was going for $300, $400. And then I found the Jefferson County Memorial Library in Alabama had a copy that was up for sale for like $28. And I bought that thing. And you know, by, by this point, I've gone through it so many times. It, it's dog-eared, tattered. But I, I love that book. And that, that helped even more. So when it came time for you to go to college, you chose Harvard, which is pretty, I must say, unorthodox for a weather-oriented kid. Not that much about you all the time I've known you has been very orthodox. But uh, what was your thinking and, and how did you make that work? Because, uh, I, you know, Harvard is not a destination generally for kids that really want to be meteorologists. My thought was kind of like the Walmart price match guarantee, which sounds, it sounds exactly like what it was. I had looked on paper, a bunch of different schools, Penn State, phenomenal meteorology program, but just seemed to be a very big school. Uh, Cornell looked to be the best of both worlds. It was a, a great school, much like Penn State, a uh, small enough feel on paper, at least that I, I thought it would be the right school for me, but it was very pricey. They wanted something like $37,000 a year to go there. And 
I've been very financially minded since I was probably only four or five years old. I actually bought a cash register at a flea market when I was five. And I keep track of my expenses every day. I had a, a little receipt printer, which I, I actually, you know, I, I was always into money. And just looking at the prices, I thought there has to be a better way to do this. And so I looked at a couple different schools. Linden State, I fell in love with. But I, I figured Cornell on yeah, paper just place. seemed like the, the mm-hmm. option I'd probably go for. But Cornell being an Ivy League school, they'll match the offer made by any other Ivy League school. And I knew that Harvard, because of their endowment, gave the best financial aid. So I figured I'd apply to Harvard, apply to Cornell. Assuming I got into both, I would try to start a bidding war between the two schools, which, again, very unorthodox. But Harvard's price was only something like $8,000 per semester, about a quarter of what Cornell's was. So I got into both. Cornell matched the offer and I went out there and it just, it didn't seem to be the school for me for, for whatever reason. So then I was stuck between choosing either Harvard or Linden. And I figured if worse came to worse, I could always transfer out of Harvard, but I, I wound up going there. And I remember panicking. I, I was getting a little bit teary when I, I finally clicked the button to go to Harvard because I thought, what the heck am I doing? I'm going to a school that doesn't have meteorology, but I knew that through a, a bizarre way called the, the special concentration, I might be able to design my own major. I knew they had the ingredients for atmospheric science. They have a lot of atmospheric science courses. They have uh, some of the world's best atmospheric science professors, both there and at MIT. And I knew that cross-enrollment between the two schools was an option, but it had never been done before. But I, I figured I might as well give it a try. And I remember freshman year walking in the first day to meet my advisor, who I had never met before, and had a three-foot-by-four-foot spreadsheet I had printed out at Staples a couple hours prior that was color-coded, that was you know four years' worth of different semesters of classes I wanted to take, and it completely overwhelmed the advisor. And, and he said, is, is this how you plan to do this? Have a backup plan. And I finally found the person who was in charge of special concentrations, and they said, okay, you can't apply until your sophomore year. Start taking some of the prereqs now. Very low chance you'll be able to do it. Only one person every year or two years is able to do a special concentration, but I wouldn't take no for an answer. And the first thing in trying to apply for a special concentration is finding an advisor who will accompany you the four years to do it. Now, back in high school, I used to write for a couple newspapers on the side, just for fun, trying to get experience. And I wrote weather. And on September 21st, 2013, I wrote about the 75th anniversary of the Hurricane of 38, the, the Great New England Hurricane mm-hmm. that felled 20 million board feet of timber. It, it brought a 186 mile per hour wind gust to the Blue Hill Observatory in Boston. It was a bad storm. And I wrote a piece about that. And it was on the cover of a, a little small town paper in my town that got something like 2,000 reads per week. What wasn't very well circulated. But a couple of weeks later, back when I was, I think, 14, I opened up the paper and there was a letter to the editor from somebody who really enjoyed that piece. And it was signed Eric J. Heller, Plymouth. He said he was a physicist. I thought, oh, mm-hmm. that's pretty nice. I sent him an email afterwards because he had his email address in the paper. I didn't think too much of it. And now fast forwarding back to Harvard, my first, second week of school, I didn't want to be there. I, I knew that it wasn't the school for me, didn't think I'd be able to do atmospheric sciences. And one particular day, I was late to a physics exam. I didn't know the exam had been canceled because I didn't check my email. So meanwhile, I'm looking for this exam that's not existing, can't find it, panicking. So I, I go everywhere in this particular building searching for it. Can't find it. I'm on the verge of tears. And finally, I just sit down and give up in this labyrinth of a building. And I look across the hallway and on the wall, there's a nameplate on door that says Eric J. Heller. I thought, 
wait a second, can this be the same guy from like four or five years earlier who wrote that little piece of my small odds? town paper? <laughs> it was him. And, and I walked inside. He remembered me. I remembered him. We had a good chat. And at the end, he said, hey, if you need an advisor, I'll be happy to do it. And it just kind of came together from there. And it was a, a bizarre program and that I had to take mostly grad classes because they didn't have them undergrad. I had to go to MIT three days a week. Some classes, uh, some semesters, I took seven classes per semester instead of the normal four. On Thursdays, there was one hour when I had to make an appearance in three different classes between two campuses. So it was, you know, running back and forth, didn't have time to eat lunch ever. I was on the bus. At the same time, I was trying to work four or five part-time jobs just to save money for the future. Somehow it worked, and I, I, I'm i glad it did, but it was a whirlwind, no pun intended. That's a hustle. Wow. Indeed. Matthew, yeah. and the universe was talking to you that day, it seemed. <laughs> I mean, how about that? It certainly uh, was. So did you know what you wanted to do with meteorology? Did you, you know, did you want to be on TV, or what were you thinking? It's been TV since day one, which is unusual in that I'm at the Washington Post right now. And when I graduated, I applied to a couple different stations. And actually, I applied to many different stations. Only about 3 or 4% got back to me, which I hear is typical. But one of the things that I struggled with was I, I love covering different events all over the place, whether it be a snowstorm in Canada, a tornado outbreak in the, in the plains, bomb cyclone anywhere, and, and things like that. And, and I figured that if I was relegated to one small area, I wouldn't get to do as much of that coverage. And I've also noticed that with local TV, a lot of times, you don't really get to introduce the terminology. You have three minutes to do a, a quick forecast, and very seldom can one go in-depth as much as they would like. And so I was stuck between either a couple different options with local TV that just didn't really pay what I was looking for, or a Wall Street offer, which paid more than what I was looking for, but I don't want to go to Wall Street. It's not my cup of tea. And I want to be, you know, in front of people sharing my passion about meteorology. And then last minute, the Washington Post came in with an offer that was smack dab right between the two of them. Couldn't pass it up. I'm doing that right now. It's no secret to anyone who knows me and even to my employer that my heart is still in TV. Recently, they have been sending me more places. We're trying to do more on camera stuff. And I'm getting to do some hits. You know, I do three or four TV hits per week, whether it be for Canadian television, BBC News, a couple different places like that. So I still get to be on camera. I'm hoping down the road. By the time I'm, I'm 32 to 34 years old, to have my own show, to be on camera full time. But getting there is, is the tricky part, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, there are you know, I look at Levi Cowan, who's got his own kind of YouTube channel, which could be kind of a mix between. And uh, it gets a lot of attention. It's very useful. And t tell me more about the Capital Weather Gang. What's your job like there? What's a typical day like? Yeah, so originally it wasn't a job before I graduated, and they called me up and said, hey, we'll make a position. What is it you'd like to do? And originally it was advertised to be 50% video, 50% on camera, uh, 50% writing. And I've been writing for them since I was, I think, 18, 19 years old, a summer of freshman year and a sophomore year. And so most days I do a lot of writing. It's been tricky getting video up and running just because we didn't really have the resources for that ahead of time. Uh, we're, we're experimenting a lot of different ways right now, whether that be just sending me into a, a storm with my iPhone, getting videos like that, doing social media hits, and being able to do TV hits from the phone. And, and so there really is no typical day. It's all based on what's going on. We do NPR radio hits a couple times a week. I do three or four of those. I get to do those TV hits whenever people call. So it's especially busy during hurricane season, during times when whatever weather we have going on is international news. I got to go out during tornado season. That was part you know, vacation time, part part working, things like that. So I get to get out in the field, which is the thing I love about being at the Post, especially because I can take my job anywhere. It's, it's on the computer, 
we were able to work from home even before the pandemic started. And, and I like that aspect of it. It's still a lot of writing. My, my fingers are definitely tired at the end of the day, writing two, three, four thousand words per day. But we are getting more into that video. And I'm optimistic to see in the future. We'll, we'll dabble in that even more. Not to mention two or three or four thousand tweets a day. Yes. Uh, is, there, is there some part of, of uh, is some part of the job you like the best? I mean, did you uh, do you have a favorite chase or a favorite thing you like to write about? Um, you know, what's what's most fun? Tornado season is my bread and butter. I could sit there and stare at GR two analyst at that three D volume rendering program all day. I absolutely love it. And I love the ones that come in where it's almost a bit of forensic meteorology and that we're trying to piece together what exactly happened. There were times when, you know, for example, with the April 12th, 13th tornado outbreak in the Deep South, we saw a bunch of debris balls on radar that day. And things were happening so fast that in the moment, we didn't really have time to break down exactly what had occurred. But one of my favorite pieces was being able to deconstruct a particular event in, I think it was North Carolina, and find that two tornadoes, two strong tornadoes, EF2+, had actually merged and done the Fujiwara effect on a very local level. I know we saw that back in 1991 in Heston, Kansas, with two EF5s, but it had really been a while since we saw two QLCS tornadoes in a northern bookend vortex, both spin up from the same parent mesocyclone, but both do that Fujiwara. It was amazing to see, and to be able to write about that and break it down in in 1,500 words, and the fact that my editors let me do that really shows how in-depth Capital Weather Gang gets to go into weather in a way that most other entities just don't get to do. So I really like the fact that we can talk about anything. And, you know, Jason especially is phenomenal. He, he created CWG from scratch. He yeah, is phenomenal yeah. about letting us talk about anything. He, he said, if you can define a word, if you can make it relevant to people, we can talk about it. So I talked about convectively coupled Kelvin waves last week in a piece, and the public devoured it. And it, it's really nice to see that we can have these teaching moments in what we write about. I like that. Yeah, well, it's nice that Jason lets you write 1,500 words. He never let me write over 800 words. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, but you grew up on, on Cape Cod, um, you know, and a lot of people that grow up right along the East Coast are all about nor'easters and, you know, the just the, the challenges of rain, snow lines and and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't, that's not your thing, huh? You, you're really a tornado guy. I didn't know that. You know, it's kind of funny. I like the challenge of it. I like the, I, I get, I'm very type A and I'm a perfectionist, which is ironic in that I'm in a, a field where there's really no right answer until after the fact. I, so I do love obsessing over that rain, snow line, but I live for wintertime convection. I live for thunder snow. I think we always yearn for what we don't have. And so I, I live for tornadoes, but I also, I love thunder snow. And I remember back in December 9th, 2005, I was in third grade. We were forecasting, well, not we, I was eight at that point, but they were forecasting about two inches of snow that day. So they, they sent us to school. And at that point, we were, we were expecting a pretty good cyclone to get going off the coast of Cape Cod. What wound up happening, we had a 13 millibar drop in three hours time. The GFS had been simulating that. No other model showed that at the time. And I remember reading the forecast discussion and the local weather service taught and said, this is a very unlikely scenario, but if this happens, this will be big. And for me, this was the snowstorm that everybody remembered. We didn't get much snow out of it, but we were seeing wind gusts 80 to 105 miles per hour across all of Cape Cod for about a two to three hour window. In the afternoon, in the warm sector of the storm, just in northeastern Cape Cod, we had winter water spouts form. There were a couple that made landfalls, weak tornadoes, when temperatures were in the lower 40s at the time. It was unbelievable. 
we had a band of thundersnow get going in eastern Massachusetts during the afternoon that struck the wingtip, a lightning bolt struck the wingtip off a flight landing at Logan Airport that had to make a special emergency landing. And, and I remember being in the school bus. It couldn't get up the hill into my neighborhood, so we had to walk from the bottom to the top in complete whiteout conditions. And some kids were on the bus for nine hours that night. So that was really the big snowstorm. I like that aspect of it because it wasn't just snow. It wasn't just a rain snow line. It was something where it was a kitchen sink storm. You had convection. You had thunder and lightning. I got my tornadoes. I didn't get to see them, yeah, of course. but Very it, dynamic and memorable, yeah. I'm sure, at that stage. Oh, it was awesome. I loved it. Well, that and he was reading forecast discussions when he was eight years old. <laughs> yeah, Don't right. let that get lost on you. And well, you're with with to- dial-up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, you're talking about the dueling tornadoes. That takes me back, you know, you're saying the Fujiwara. We, uh, I was in Nebraska. I moved to Florida from Nebraska, and I was uh, working in Lincoln. And we had the dueling EF4s in Pilger. During my yep. tenure there, while we were there, that was another one of those really rare events oh, wow. that just uh, you reminded me of. So anyway, now that you're in the communications part of meteorology, do you feel good about our ability to reach people with key messages or are you concerned about it, especially communicating with young people? With young people, I, you know, I, I'm struggling with that because I'm in the unusual, in the unusual position of being a young person myself but also not like mentally being a young person. So I have to try to figure out how to communicate to people my own age, which is challenging. I just got a TikTok the other day and I cannot for the life of me figure this thing out and how to get information across there. I I think young people, especially nowadays, are getting a shorter retention span. The news cycle is is becoming much more brief. So we're we're past the days of where people are going to wait for a three minute weather forecast at 6.15. I, I think we're past the days of when people, the average person is going to, read an 800 or 1,000 word forecast if I write it. And so we're trying to figure out ways to get shorter information across when people want it in a sort of on-demand way. I think, especially because of phones nowadays, people can get whatever they want. I think a lot of the way we communicate, especially with higher end weather events, is the way we've been doing it all along. And I think we're just not reaching where the social science wants us to. I think one of the things we also do is get, and we as a community, get too bogged down in the technical definition of something to the point that it gets in the way of us being able to communicate it. I think we also forget too that weather happens on a local level. And and so often, especially with probabilistic forecasts, we put out these forecasts that say, you know, XYZ could happen today. And I think one of the tricky things is the public thinks it's it's the same as, you know, chance precipitation. They think if if it's scattered, they're going to get it. And I think the public is becoming more desensitized to our messaging now more than ever. And it's challenging in that the news cycle is being more competitive. So we have to get these headlines out there. Yet because the public is becoming more desensitized, they're less likely to read them. And it it just seems to be a spiraling thing right now. And I I don't really have the right answer. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling myself to do it. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? Where you have now, on one end, here's all the possibilities. This is a complete forecast versus uh, just giving the cliffs notes, which you lose information somewhere in the middle. You know, maybe there's a balance to be struck. It's just it's not easy. I agree with that. Uh, something else I wanted to ask you is you have a really large following on social media, well beyond many meteorologists that have promo departments pushing them and they have TV time, myself included. Uh, so you're obviously resonating with a large group of people. What do you think it is about your tweets that people respond to? Is there a strategy or do you just tweet about things that interest you? 
I tweet about things that interest me because if it interests me and I can show that passion to people, I think anybody will, will actively be interested in it. For example, back in July, my, my Twitter following really took off following a gust front that passed overhead. And you know, when I was looking around for apartments originally in D.C., I, I said to the real estate lady, I needed a place that was on the 10th floor higher and faced west. And she found me the perfect place. The roof is two floors up, so I'm hanging on my roof the whole time. And as much as possible, I'll do little tours of the sky. I'll show folks whatever it is that gets me nerdy and geeking out. Because if there's something I see, whether it be a roll cloud, a thunderstorm, a cirrus cloud, anything that catches my attention, if I can break it down in 30 or 40 seconds, explain it to people and why it's special, I think people like that. Especially in a place like D.C. that is so politics heavy. People scrolling through their feeds, it's all oftentimes negative stuff. And, and we see so much of that on social media nowadays, the bickering back and forth between people. I think people like the fact that they're seeing something that is not political, that is scientific, that is able to be digested, that is visual. And from somebody who, who's young like me, who looks like he's 12 years old and is geeking out about a cloud he's seeing, I think people just really like that sincerity of me, happy, clouds, and learn something new. So there was some point, I'm sure you you had to reconcile the idea of wanting to be technical, but not being able to write uh, technical, you know, there, there's that, that balance there, right? By uh, uh, conveying technical issues, but not using technical words without explaining them or just not using them at all. And that's hard for people with a science brain. Did, did you find the, the transition to communicating to non-technical people uh, was a hard step? I do. You know, initially I would try to, especially with my tweets, I tried to make them as accessible as possible. And one of the things that struck me was in the field of meteorology itself, there were academics who would be writing in kind of admonishing me for oversimplifications. Yet it's tricky trying to get these complex concepts to the public who might not have the ability to know exactly what a geostrophic wind is, for example. And so it really has been a balancing act. I find that too many buzzwords turns the public off, but if you get one buzzword in, but make it heavily visual, the public likes that. They feel like they're edifying themselves, learning something new. When I talk about convectively coupled Kelvin waves, for example, that scared a lot of people. But in the next sentence, I said, it's just like being at a stadium when you have the, the wave going around the stadium with people going with their hands. When the wave goes up, air is rising. When it goes down, it's sinking. And people could visualize this wave going around the tropics, just like the wave in the stadium going around the, the entire playing field. And I think if people have something in their own experience to draw from, they will better be able to resonate with it and, and actively seek to learn more about it rather than just shutting off. I think because I, I've talked for so long in a variety of, of different ways, whether it be through tutoring or working as a motivational speaker on the side or, or things like that. I think that has equipped me well to do that. And meteorology in general is a game of teaching because we're communicating to the general audience. Well, people that know me very well know my mantra, precision is the enemy of accuracy. So finding that balance between uh, not being overly precise, but still being accurate is really what, what communicating to the public is all about, communicating technical issues, right? All right, uh, Matthew, it's so uh, great to see you again, and, and we really appreciate you being here on the podcast. Hey, thanks again so much for having me. It was a really good time. So look for Matthew's work on WashingtonPost.com or follow him on Twitter 
at Matthew Capucci. That's Matthew with two T's and C-A-P-P-U-C-C-I. You will be reported. <laughs> reported. You will be rewarded. And um, it's amazing how much he puts out. It is. That guy, he's got a motor on him. I mean, his Twitter just doesn't stop. And that's one of many things that he does. And quality stuff. It's very really, really, really uh, good. And I've seen him develop over all these years. It's it's fantastic. And so now, <laughs> talk about fantastic. Let's bring in Jack Sillen, who's still in school at Cornell uh, with almost two years left, but is equally prolific online and on social media. It's just amazing. Hi, Jack. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. So you're in school in uh, Cornell, which would normally be in Ithaca, New York. It's a great meteorology school, great school in general, but you're still cranking out post after post and tweet after tweet. How do you do it all? Uh, well, long days, uh, fast typing. Um, I think that's one of the skills I've definitely developed uh, over the course of the past few years, being both a student and uh, an online forecaster is uh, you know, I can type uh, type out a post in 45 minutes or an hour and then get some homework done and then be back in time for the next round of forecast models or the next Hurricane Center advisory. So it, it does make for long days, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Jack, how did being a young meteorologist start for you? Oh, well, it started actually watching Brian on the Weather Channel way hey, back. See, the see there we go. There talking. we go. Every time you get the young people on here, it's, oh, when I was the littlest kid and you were this, uh, you know, yeah. But yeah. thank you. That's, that's quite an honor. Yeah, that, it was actually one of the, it was the only channel that my mom would let me watch on the back of the TV or on the TV on the back of the plane, plane seats when we were flying out to, you know, family vacations. So uh, I watched dozens and dozens of hours of the Weather Channel um, going to and from family vacations and visiting relatives and stuff. And, you know, by hour 25 or 30, I was like, huh, some of this stuff is actually pretty interesting. How about that? Mom, yeah. Mama got your brainwashed with weather in the best possible way. <laughs> yes, so, indeed. So when did you start blogging and communicating to the public, not just family and friends, but the public? How old were you and how's that happened? So I was 10 years old. Um, my dad set me up with a little WordPress blog, forecasterjack.com, in uh, 2011. Um, and I started posting there about uh, the weather just in my local area, Yarmouth, Maine. And um, I've actually, I still maintain that blog today. So if you're looking for a little write-up of what's happening in the western half of the state of Maine and New Hampshire, um, that's one of the places you can find it. And that's definitely where I honed my skills throughout middle school and high school before uh, I started moving on to bigger projects in college. Well, and well, and in college, I mean, you're, are you a sophomore? I'm going to be a junior. I am a junior this year. Well, he's a, a, junior, <laughs> a junior in college and, and the, you're onto your third website, I think. Uh, yeah. So, so is there a, a certain kind of weather that interests you? Like, like nor'easters or something else, or is it the communications part of it that you like so much? So it really, my love of weather really started out with nor'easters. That's the big thing. Our big ticket item in New England is the big winter storms and blizzards and stuff. So that's really where my heart and soul has been um, as a, a budding meteorologist. Um, but when I got a job in uh, my junior year of high school working for weather.us and weathermodels.com, um, they asked me to write about hurricanes. So I had to do a little crash course on tropical meteorology and discovered that, wow, this was really fascinating too. So now I would say my allegiance is probably split based on the season. 
Um, and I find hurricanes and blizzards about equally fascinating uh, at, at this point. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And, and you write these analyses on forecasterjack.com and on your your uh, new site, uh, sellandweather.com. And uh, the ones on Forecaster Jack are about uh, Maine and uh, New Hampshire weather, as you said. So is that what you want to do when you grow up? I mean, you want to you know maintain these websites or or is there some other thing that you have in mind you want to do tv you want to uh write books well you know <laughs> well yeah what do, you, what do you have in your mind what's your vision or do you have one at this point so i would say to the extent that i have a clear idea of what i want to do is that i want to be uh, at least have some foot in the operational world i love making forecasts um it's a really rewarding experience intellectually i get to verify my forecasts not that long after i make them which is really interesting. And there's always something to learn. Every time you make a forecast, you know, you're, you're always trying to play mother nature to a tie. You can never win. So um, I really like that part of it. Now, whether that happens to be in front of a TV screen or whether that happens to be at a weather service office or whether that happens to be somewhere in the private sector, I really don't know. I figure, you know, I'll see whatever opportunities pop up after I graduate and, uh, and sort of go from there. And it should be mentioned too, that do yourself a service and follow Jack on Twitter and the amount that you put out and the quality, really it's quality stuff that you put out, very useful information. And uh, anyway, it's great. Go check it out. So oh, thank you so much. How do you think we do communicating with the public when extreme weather is coming? And especially with young people in particular, what are your thoughts on that? It's a really tough nut to crack. Um, most of us um, are, are not super highly trained in, in the communication side of things, right? There's a whole field of sociology or, or I don't know, social science, whatever that sort of falls into, um, that's focused on how to get messages across to people. And I think that that's a uh, sort of part of um, the science world that most meteorologists don't have much formal training in. So we do our, our best, uh, and a lot of us do a really great job, um, but it's, a, it's an area that we maybe uh, haven't been trained as formally in, um, and that, uh, that presents a lot of challenges. But I think that, you know, to the extent that I've found success in communicating weather information to the public, um, being honest about what we know and what we don't know at any given point, I think is probably the number one thing. Um, cause there are people who are going to say, you know, seven days from now, I can promise a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, or, you know, it's headed, you know, this storm is headed right for your town. Um, and people get tired of that because obviously we can't tell you exactly where a hurricane's going to make landfall seven days from now. Um, so I think that being honest about what we know, what we don't know, um, and then really trying to make the information actionable, you know, so despite the uncertainty, here's what you should be doing. Um, whether that's getting your hurricane plan uh, sort of drawn up before the season, whether that's dusting that off uh, five days out ahead of a storm, or whether that's actually putting that plan into action two or three days ahead of a storm, uh, I think that that can really help um, make our communication more effective rather than getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, exactly which county is the eye going to pass over, um, which, of course, is a hard question to answer scientifically. And it's hard what? to communicate that uncertainty. It is. And I totally agree about your statement on being actionable, because that brings a sense of order to something that's chaotic. And when you have order, you calm down a little bit and it takes the stress off. And now you're able to make good quality decisions. And it's a, it's a bit comforting and it's something that needs to be done. So it, it, it's a really good step to take and an approach to take. So you mentioned those two items. Is there anything that you can imagine that we could do better? Maybe some sort of systemic change? Any ideas there? 
Yeah, I think that there are a lot of opportunities we have. And I think that reaching people who are not in the sort of clued into our information ecosystem is really uh, probably one of the biggest things that we could do as a community. So most of my friends in college are not watching TV. So they're not getting weather from someone on the local news. They're not getting their weather from a, a national weather outlet. Um, most of them are not spending a lot of time on Facebook or honestly, even on Twitter, right? These are people who are hanging out on Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat. And that's an information vacuum uh, in a lot of places um, when it comes to meteorology. Uh, so, and a lot of people, you know, even to the extent that there is weather information out on these platforms, they aren't seeking it out. Um, they're getting their weather from their default weather app on their iPhone. And I don't really know how to change that. Um, <laughs> honestly, I, I tell them, you know, after they come into class soaking wet because the rain moved in and they didn't have an umbrella, I'm like, come on, I could have told you this, you know, four hours ago. Uh, you know, the, the local weatherman has been talking about this rain for three days and they're like, oh, well, I don't know. Bummer, I guess, <laughs> you know, and so it's really hard. I don't know how to how to reach those people who aren't following us on Twitter or watching us um, on TV or whatever platform we happen to be on. Or have a radar scope app for God's sakes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Learn how to read the radar. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, I've given a lot of talks about emergency communications and so forth, and and what I say is very similar to what you said. I say, you know, you always want to tell people what you know, what you don't know, but also when are you going to know more in an emergency flow of information, right? Because if people feel that they know what's knowable know and know what isn't knowable and when we will know more, then they feel like they're up to date, right? There's not a uh, kind of a confusion vacuum uh, that exists. So uh, I like that a lot. So one of the big challenges for all of us, uh, I think, and I'm wondering how you at your age uh, got to this point. I ask, actually asked uh, Matthew a, a similar question just a few minutes ago. Uh, how do you balance... Uh, in your post between scientific language and writing so everybody can understand because everything you're writing about is kind of technical, right? We're, we're not talking about see spot run here. We're, we're uh, you know, actually writing about technical issues. Yeah, that's a really, uh, it's a fine line to walk. And I'll admit that I don't always do it exactly right. Some of my posts probably are a little bit too technical for the swath of people that I'm trying to reach and others probably could use a little bit more buttressing with some of the, the under the detail, uh, you know, under the hood information. I think the biggest thing that I try to do is um, give people the technical information that they need to feel more in control of the situation. Um, and I think that one of the big sort of my, I guess to the extent that I had a motto or still do have a motto in, in what I do is I want to tell you not just what the forecast is going to be, but a little bit of why the forecast is what we're expecting it to be. Um, and I think that, you know, we don't need to go into the details of every nut and bolt um, of, you know, how hurricanes are working at a, a you know, microphysical level, for example. Um, but if, uh, you know, I can explain, look, you know, here are the two ridges and the trough that are responsible for steering this hurricane. And there's this, you know, these diabetic heating processes. And I'll explain to you what that means, right? It means that, you know, condensation is happening in these updrafts and that's releasing heat into the atmosphere. And then that's making this ridge stronger 
Therefore, that's why we're expecting Harvey to stall out or Doreen to make the turn up to the east of Florida. Um, so I think that I really try to stick with the technical information that makes people feel like, wow, I have an answer to this question, right? When people are asking me in Florida ahead of Dorian, why can we trust you when you say that this storm, this Category 5 hurricane that's barreling towards my location, you're telling me it's just going to bang a right? Why on earth can I trust you on that? And if my response is, all right, here, we see this trough coming down. It's going to move between these ridges. The hurricane wants to move north um, because of this sort of beta drift phenomenon, um, which I don't have to explain to you the math behind. But um, these are the reasons why you like if there's a there's a, a something that you can look on the map. If you want to see it on the water vapor, I can show you. And that helps people feel like, all right, now I know there's this trough. It's coming down from Georgia. That's why we can trust these forecasts. Um, so I think that that's where I try to keep my technical information. And then I always try to explain the jargon. If there's a term that my parents don't know, um, then I'm going to take the time to explain that in a sentence or two so that people uh, hopefully aren't feeling too lost. Well, that makes your message that much more effective, doesn't it? Anytime you lift the veil a little bit and remove some mystery, now your message is probably going to be received a little bit better. I totally agree. Have you come across whether situations where you found yourself explaining that no reliable forecast is possible, like how do you deal with those situations when a small factor could make a huge difference on the impact? An example would be whether it rains or snows. Yeah. So it's tough trying to manage those expectations because, you know, we have all these apps, I think, are really doing us a disservice as a field by offering a precision forecast seven to 10 plus days out. And people are like, wow. You know, you can tell me whether it's going to be 75 and partly cloudy, you know, 16 days from now or so on and so forth. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, this goes back to what Brian was talking about earlier and explaining over and over again, what do we know now? What do we not know now? And when are we going to be able to answer some of the question marks that we still have at this current time? Um, and I think that that's really what I tried to, uh, you know, say, look, seven days out from a hurricane, I can tell you that the hurricane is probably going to form. And I can tell you that it may move in your general direction. But honestly, you know, you can't get much more from that. You're not going to get any more from that from Brian. You're not going to get any more of that than that from Luke on the local news. You're not going to get any more than that from the Hurricane Center. So when you have a whole bunch of different sources that are, are all saying the same sort of thing, that helps give those, uh, that help, really helps with the expectation management, I think. Yeah, I think that that's really the most important thing. I found myself uh, this year, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, in my, my posts that I do every morning about hurricane season, uh, talking about, okay, this, there are no strong steering currents here. So be ready for the forecast to change. I mean, sometimes you just, that's the best expectation that you can deliver, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and explaining in what direction the forecast might change or say, don't be, you know, like I remember saying over and over again with Sally, when it looked like it might start shifting a little bit East, you know, I was writing posts that said like, our, our best guess right now is that this makes landfall somewhere in southeastern Louisiana. But if you're in the Florida panhandle, you need to be ready because this may come your way. Um, so stuff like that, where you're saying this is what the current forecast is. But if I had to forecast my forecast, so to speak, right, and say, you know, if I had to guess what I'm going to be saying to you tomorrow or the next day, this is what it might be. And so start to prepare in that general direction. I think that was uh, really helpful, too. You know, I want to go back to another thing you said. Uh, which, because I wrote a column about this uh, uh, in the Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, I don't know, 
couple of years ago or something, I Luke, maybe you remember, about this whole issue of the expectation that meteorologists create and the people that make apps create uh, because we put an icon on the temperature seven days from now that looks exactly like the icon and the temperature for tomorrow, by the way, even though the underpinnings of those two forecasts are so fundamentally different scientifically, right? We're, we're actually not doing our brethren and ourselves any favors in terms of perception and, and understanding of, of science by doing that. Yeah, I totally agree. And, uh, you know, I've seen some really uh, promising ways of trying to address that from some of the folks here in my local TV market um, who have done a sort of like five plus three day forecasts, say, where they have a, you know, the first five days have, you know, an icon, a precise temperature, um, you know, 83 for the high and 51 for the low. Um, and then those next three days are like low 80s and like, chance of rain, right? Or, you know, there might be a cold front somewhere in here. So I think that, you know, that's absolutely one of the many um, sources of this challenge in the meteorology community. But I also think there's some really cool solutions that are already being used where we can try to differentiate, you know, look, the three-day forecast is really different from the five-day forecast is really different from the 10-day forecast. And so trying to get that message out way before a hurricane because this work is, is uh, you know, stuff that we do and can do on the local news every morning and every evening. It's stuff that we can do when the weather's quiet so that people are already in that mind space when a hurricane's coming um, to, to be thinking about how a seven-day forecast is different from a five, from a three versus a one-day forecast. Yeah, the challenge is that the primary source of weather on a day-to-day basis is the phone anymore, right? And the phone doesn't explain very well. That's absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> yes. So, all right. So how do, so people follow you on Twitter at, at jacksillin.com or at jacksillin, what am I saying? Yeah. Uh, S-I-L-L-I-N. And Maine and New Hampshire people can go to forecasterjack.com and you have the website sillinweather.com. Uh, is there anywhere else we should send people <laughs> while you're here? Uh, I have a couple other side projects that I uh, help contribute to during hurricane season. If you have the hurricane tracker app, I write little discussions for them when there are active storms. Um, and then I also uh, help contribute to uh, hurricanetrack.com, which is uh, Mark Suddoth's page. So yeah, I know Mark very well. Yes. All right, Jack, it's uh, such a pleasure to meet you and uh, best of luck at Cornell. You're already a star at that school, I'm sure. And uh, I hope we see each other again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Wow. So there's a couple of impressive young meteorologists. Yeah, slightly. Uh, it's, it's remarkable to me on a couple of things. One is the amount of just workload that these guys take on, the amount that they put out there, just what I see, just on Twitter mm -hmm. alone is incredible. The other thing that really gets me about both of these, well, I want to say too, it's encouraging for the future of meteorology to know that there are people like these two men that are out there, like some really sharp minds that have an incredible passion for it. And it's really nice to see. But it's striking to me because I went through what these guys have recently gone through, and it's just, I'm blown away by how advanced they are. From a very young age, these guys have been doing really technical things, things that I didn't get really involved with until I became a college student. They were well ahead of the curve. And the amount and breadth of their knowledge is remarkable because it takes time to see these patterns in meteorology. When you're forecasting, you'll see an event, 
and you'll recognize this pattern the next time it shows up and you learn each one of those times. So for these guys to be the age that they are and to understand the workings of the atmosphere the way that they do, it's, it's on par with people that have been in the business for as long as these guys have been alive. It's well, and I think even another level than that is that, as we just saw, they are so articulate and able to describe their thoughts about it. Because to me, that's the, you know, when people get out of meteorology school and you put them on television or you put them in front of a microphone like we did here, they don't have that ability in general. I didn't don't feel like I had that ability to articulate the sort of technical ideas with the kind of clarity that uh, Matthew and Jack just showed us just a moment ago. Yeah, what's interesting is if you want to take the those that are the best communicators can take complex ideas and make them simple, right? Not to the point of being wrong, not distilling out all the information and lose, losing nuance, but those that can simplify it and make it understandable. And I think that if you're going to do that, you have to have a really deep knowledge of what you're talking about. You can't kind of half understand it. You have to fully understand it. And that's something else that, that helps these both Jack and Matthew's ability to communicate is that they understand it really completely so they can break it down. Jack was talking about that there at the end and uh, give you kind of the nuts and bolts, what you need to know. And it's an effective way to get a message across. And I wonder too, what impact social media and just the way that we communicate these days, everything, you know, you compare a civil war letter to an emoji text. You know, that's kind of the way that communication has gone is very abbreviated. I wonder if that abbreviation in the way that we communicate is now filtering into the younger generation and that's coming out uh, in, in the way that we see with these two. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's Growing up these days is just different than it was, no question about it, because from the beginning, you know, people this age, from the, the earliest time in their life, they had access to all this information where I didn't, certainly, and, and you did to a different degree, just in that difference in, you know, 10 or 15 years. It's, it's amazingly different in what you can, what you have access to. You know, you, you can't just go to the, I couldn't go to the computer. And there was no such thing as a computer. But there was, I couldn't just go to the computer and have an idea and, and try and figure out something about hurricane meteorology if I wanted to. Right? Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't do it. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a feasible thing to do. It wasn't even possible. It wasn't remotely possible, right? I could have gone to the library, I guess, and pulled out all the books, but that would be the closest thing. And even when you were a kid, I don't think that, you know, it was a, information was as accessible at home when you had an idea or a question. It wasn't like, oh, Google it automatically. No. For me, it was, I was, they used to advertise on late night television. They'd have a storm chasing video and you would order it online. You'd call it, or not online. You'd order it by calling a phone number. And like six weeks later, it was a long time. And it'd be a VHS. You'd get yeah. a VHS and then you could yeah. watch it over. It didn't teach you much. You just got to watch, you know, videos of tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever. And then the internet started to come on, but there wasn't much, you know, you had like storm track. Uh, there was a discussion board that you could go to, but you're right. It wasn't really until uh, I was a little bit older that it, the internet became what it truly is today, where you could just go out and, and feed yourself the knowledge that you were looking for. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very different. It changes how people grow up, I think. Well, next week on the podcast, we're going to talk with famous former FEMA director, Craig Fugate. 
Before that, he was, of course, director of the Florida Emergency Management Division, where he dealt with the big hurricane outbreaks in 2004 and 2005. He's one of the most knowledgeable people around about everything to do with hurricanes and managing disasters afterward. So that'll be next week on the podcast. Until then, uh, keep an eye on the tropics, although we really don't uh, expect to have um, much going on, which is a real breath of fresh air, so to speak. Um, but we're not quite finished with hurricane season yet. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week, everybody. Be well, stay safe, and please wear a mask. Thank you.